going to have two readings. We're following through um, this Easter Matthew's account um, of the, the end of, of the life of our Lord Jesus. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 26. And then a little later in our service from Matthew 27. So Matthew 26, uh, beginning to read at verse 6. Let's hear the word of God. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go up. Here comes my betrayer. Between the two readings, of course, there have been the uh, various trials uh, that Jesus was involved in. There, there's the, the mocking uh, of him by the, the soldiers um, following the, the betrayal by Judas. And then we pick up the story in verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They'd put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lot, casting lots and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him from noon until three in the afternoon. Darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Pray God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. When I was a youngster, I, I had no real church background at all. Uh, my family didn't go to church. I didn't go to church. Um, I escaped uh, from Sunday school fairly early on because I didn't like it. Uh, and that was it. I, I wasn't interested. Um, but one thing I could never understand um, were two things about Good Friday. The, the first was why it was called Good Friday. Because it seemed to me that if Christians believed that this was the day on which the leader of their religion was killed, I could have understood Good Easter, but I couldn't understand Good Friday. It made no sense to me at all. And the other thing I couldn't understand was basically why Jesus had to die in the first place. I'd have been really alongside uh, not mocking, I hope, but I'd have been alongside the, the crowd uh, and the chief priests saying, well, if God delights in him, why doesn't he save him? Because that's what you'd expect, wouldn't it? You would expect a rescue. So I, I just want us to think this morning, um, why did there have to be a Good Friday? 
It's a very simple question. Uh, and the answer is, is not profound, um, but it's incredibly vital, I think. The first thing is to demonstrate the sinfulness of sin. We, we have a, a huge tendency, don't we, to um, excuse our own failings and, and we talk about them as weaknesses and, uh, and all kinds of things. The, one of the things that, that the death of Jesus demonstrates is just how sinful sin is. Uh, and we can look at this in a number of ways. First of all, the, the effect that, that sin has on man Uh, And we'd go back to Genesis 3. Uh, When man breaks God's law and and sins, um, immediately, well, let's use God's own words to to understand it. God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Uh, And then a few verses down it says, uh, and God drove man, very strong word, God drove man out of the garden and placed cherubim, with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God regarded their transgression uh, as being so serious that that the whole of creation became corrupted by what they'd done. Instead of this idyllic garden in which they lived where the you know the dew came down and watered everything every day and um, there were no weeds there were no thorns a gardener's paradise everything growing where it should grow nothing growing that shouldn't grow it was absolutely perfect uh, and, and for man it, it was it was pleasurable work it wasn't toil uh, and he had a beautiful relationship with his wife uh, and he had a, a clear conscience and it all vanishes in one moment. Suddenly their nakedness becomes a, a cause of shame to them. The, the ground is against them. But most particularly their fellowship with God is gone. God no longer walks in the garden with them in the cool of the day. Uh, and the very idea that God should come into the garden terrifies them. And so they hide and they try to cover their shame. And then they're cast out. Uh, and from then on, it gets worse and worse and worse with uh, all kinds of, of, of things going on. There's an effect that goes on into everyday life. Paul in Galatians 5 says this, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The, the fruit of sin works its way out. Paul isn't saying every one of us is guilty of all of those sins, but he's saying all of us are guilty of some of them. Uh, and all of us are guilty not just of a single one, but of probably multiple ones. So we may well pat ourselves on the back and say, never been to an orgy in my life. Aren't I self-righteous? Uh, and God will say, well, have you ever been jealous? Have you ever caused discord within a family or within the workplace or within the church? 
And we don't sound quite so good then, do we? The effect of sin on everyday life. The ultimate effect of sin is, is terrifying. Matthew 25, we read these words. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells the, the story of a rich man and a beggar, uh, Lazarus, and uh, at one point in that story, he, he has um, the rich man talking to Abraham, uh, and he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Jesus has more on his lips about hell than anyone else in Scripture. And, and he, in his teaching, uses dramatic kind of, whoa, scare tactics language. He says, you know, if, if, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It would be better to be blind and have eternal life than it would to have two eyes and go to hell. He, the, the, the strength of God's words. What we often don't think about, I think, is the effect of sin on God. The first occasion you, you really hear of it is, is just before Noah's flood. It says, the Lord was grieved that he'd made man, and his heart was filled with pain. God's heart was filled with pain because he looked down at this, this world of men that he'd made to bear his image and, and to rule over this idyllic world, to, to, to multiply and subdue the earth and, and rule over it. And what does he see? He sees nothing but carnage and chaos. And the heart of God is filled with pain. Uh, and there are many other uh, verses that we, we could look at where, where God expresses his own sorrow. So the first purpose, I think, of Good Friday is to demonstrate the sinfulness of sin. There is no other way in which God can deal with the problem of sin because the problem of sin is so big. The second thing is to satisfy the justice of God. God proclaims himself in Scripture always to be a just God. He says the soul that sins is the one that will die. He says this in Ezekiel. Um, the son will not share the guilt of the father, nor the father share the guilt of the son. The righteous man will be credited his righteousness, and the wicked man will be charged with his wickedness. God's a just God. He's fair. But the problem with that comes when you grasp the significance of Paul's words in Roman, because Paul says, I, I, I won't charge anybody with any sin that they're not guilty of. But then Paul says, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that leaves all of us in the same place, facing an accusation, and the wages of sin is death. How does God reconcile his justice? Do we want to live in a world where there is no justice? Do, do we want to live in a world where murderers, thieves, and rapists and so on walk free? We don't. We want there to be justice. If we understand the seriousness of the charge, sin, and we want justice, we're in a mess. How are we going to... How are we going to square that circle how are we going to reconcile these two things the third reason for good friday is to satisfy the love of god you see this is god's dilemma 
He loves the creation he's made. Don't ask me why. I don't know the answer to that one, but he does. He made man in his own image, uh, and therefore for God it is not a possibility to simply erase this first creation and create another one. Come on, it would have taken him six days. I'm sure he could have done it quicker if he wanted to. He he could do it all again and and create a new Adam and a new Eve and, and start all over again. But no, God is committed to mankind. So he loves man. But he can't set aside justice. How, how is he going to do it? Uh, and Scripture says so much about this love of God. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. K- King David says this, I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. Hosea says, or God says through Hosea, yet I will show love to the house of Judah. I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but by the Lord their God. I will save them. I do love them. What about this for extensive love? Jonah. Jonah prays, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah had a problem. He was being sent to the Ninevites, and he hated the Ninevites. He really hated them. Uh, And and his message was a message of doom that you think he might have delighted in. He he used to wander through the city and say, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Uh, And you can imagine an enemy of the Ninevites taking a certain degree of kind of pleasure in this. But Jonah's problem is this. He just has in the back of his mind the nagging thought that this message may actually produce repentance. Uh, And knowing God, when there is repentance, there's forgiveness. And when there's forgiveness, there's freedom. He doesn't want it. So he doesn't want them to hear the message, even though it's a message of doom, because the effect of that message might be mercy and grace. Jonah knows his God. He's just not much like him. So, that's the, I would suggest, the three reasons. But there's a picture in Scripture that begins to explain it all. And it's the the picture of the Lamb. Let me take you through the highlights. The detail, just the highlights. There's a man called Abraham. Uh, And he's a faithful servant of God. He's been called out of a pagan background to to love and serve the Lord. Uh, And the Lord has given him a promise. Uh, And that promise is, is simply that his son will be the fountainhead of of incredible blessing. He will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven uh, and the grains of sand on the seashore. After a long struggle uh, and wrestling with with, with faith and prayer, the child is born and everything is wonderful. Uh, And then one day, 
God drops a bombshell on him. God says, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac. No, he says, I want you to take your only son, Isaac. That's rubbing it in. And I want you to sacrifice him. And early the next morning, Abraham gets up and he takes Isaac with him. Isaac is not a small child at this point. Don't think, do, do, do the math. Um, Isaac is probably about 22, 23 years old at this point. Uh, and they go together uh, and he, he binds his hand. And, and, and Isaac says to him, something missing here. We, we've got wood, we've got an altar. Um, where is the lamb? Uh, and Abraham, in faith, says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. There, there's a, a nuance in the Hebrew there. I'm told I'm not a Hebraist, but there's a nuance in the Hebrew which means you can either understand that God will provide a lamb, he will do it, or it can mean he will be the lamb that will do it. It can mean either. Just as Abraham is about to thrust the knife into his son, and we know what was going through his mind at that moment because the writer to the Hebrews under inspiration of God tells us he believed the knife would go right into his son's heart. He believed his son would bleed out on that altar. But because the son was the promise of God, he believed he would rise from the dead again. He was wrong. Just as the knife was coming down, God shouts to Abraham and says, Abraham, stop. Now I know you love me because you've not withheld your son, your only son. There's a lamb caught in the thicket, a ram. And so Isaac is taken off the altar and the lamb is put on and the lamb becomes a substitute for Isaac. Move on. And we're in Egypt. The children of Israel have been there for 400 years slaving away for these Egyptian taskmasters. Uh, and Moses has come down having been spoken to by God on Mount Sinai. Things have got worse for them. Miracle after miracle has happened. Uh, and now the final day is coming. There's been a darkness that you can feel the night before. And now there is a day and God says, look, the angel of death is going to move through the land. And every firstborn of every house in the whole land of Egypt is going to die. The firstborn of sheep and cattle, the firstborn from the slave in the slave quarters to Pharaoh in his palace, they're all going to die. But take a lamb, a pure lamb, sacrifice it, put its blood on the doorposts and on the side posts, the, the doorposts and the lintels. And when I see the blood, I will pass over where the jewish festival of passover comes from what's happening the lamb has become a substitute for the firstborn let's roll on israel is now wandering in the wilderness they they they, they built a tabernacle in which to worship god but they're they're a sinful people still. They're, they're still at it. Um, 
the story of their wilderness wanderings is a story of sin. They're there for 40 years because they're disobedient to God. And they're disobedient to God all the 40 years they're there. And so what does God do? He says, well, there's got to be a means of, of sorting this out. And so because they break the moral law of God, they do steal, they do commit adultery, they do bear false witness and all the other things. They don't keep the Sabbath day holy. All of these things are there. So God says, okay, we're going to have a sacrificial system. And on the day of atonement, lambs will die. And I will accept their blood as signifying your forgiveness. Roll on. There's a bit of a wild guy now in the Jordan River, and he's shouting to the people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the first time the prophetic voice of God has been heard in 400 years. But it's heard now. And the crowds are coming to John to be baptized, and some of them are saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the king that's to come? And then one day, his cousin comes down the road and John stops everything and he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who's the Lamb? Jesus of Nazareth. But what was the purpose of all of those lambs? To be a sacrifice for sin. To be a substitute for a sinful people. But all of those lambs had to die for that to happen. And God is preparing us for the moment when the Lamb of God is nailed to a cross on Good Friday and He sheds His blood so that you and I can be forgiven. It took one lamb to redeem Isaac. It took a lamb for every household to redeem the people in the Passover day. It it, it took millions of lambs to atone for the sins of Israel down through the centuries. Now one perfect lamb will offer one perfect sacrifice, shed one precious blood, and all of God's people can be forgiven. Peter says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Two verses from Revelation. Revelation 5.12, in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb. This is the, the gathered people of God in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb. What else do they say? Who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It's not complicated, is it? Why does there need to be Good Friday? So that we understand the sinfulness of sin. Uh, And so that God's great dilemma can be solved. How can he be just and loving simultaneously? And the answer is that God himself will pay the price of our sin. God himself in the person of Jesus will do all that is necessary to satisfy his justice by bearing the full weight of the penalty of sin. 
but God in the person of Jesus will also fully demonstrate the extent of the love of God by freely offering himself up. Do you not think he could have called on 12 legions of angels to bring him down from the cross? He could have done, but not and save us. And that was his purpose. That was what he wanted to do. I don't think that was hard to follow. But it's a doctrine known as penal substitutionary atonement, which has got, you know, it's, it's got a big fancy name to it. But it's just simply saying that God himself suffered and died in your place so that you can be forgiven. He died for me so that I can be forgiven. That's why it's Good Friday. Not because of what we did to Jesus. That should have meant it was called Evil Friday. But because all of that is eclipsed by what God did for us. He saved us through the shedding of his own precious 